Welcome back to the Space Biff Spacecast. As always, I am your uh, dear host and best friend, Dan Throw. And today I am joined by a special guest. This is somebody who I've been curious to talk to for a long time because I've been enjoying his game. This is the designer of Blood on the Clock Tower, Stephen Medway. Stephen, how are you today? I'm doing really well. Thank you, Dan. And hello to everyone who's listening. So you've designed a game that has uh, very quickly, I think, captured people's imaginations. Uh, that game, of course, is Blood on the Clock Tower. If you could give us just the quick view for those who might be listening but don't know what Blood on the Clock Tower is, what would the thousand-foot view of that game be? Uh, Blood on the Clock Tower is a murder mystery game about secret identities. Set in a... Set in a town a long time ago, there is a demon on the loose that kills by night and takes on human form by day. So it is the job of the good players in the game to find and kill the demon, and it is the job of the evil players in the, in the game to lie and spread false information and to stay alive and to kill the good, to, to kill the good players. It's a game where there's a lot of information, a lot of misinformation, a lot of trust building, a lot of lying, um, and it's a ton of fun. So that part, that last part is absolutely true. I can, uh, I can agree to that. I have only played. So you, the base set comes with three games, right? Is that correct? So a three, and scenarios. A, three and a bit, three and a bit, three and a bit. Yeah. There's, there's some stuff that you can kind of mix in with other things. And I've only played two of them so far. But both times we played were uh, wonderful experiences. We sat down and played like five sessions uh, just with those two sets. And we, we had a wonderful time. We, we had some accusations. I have a friend named Jeff who was a gambler, and he made what I think was the most ill-advised gamble in all of human history. Like literally, his, so our famous story is that my friend Jeff, gambler, and he made a guess on the first night with no information and died immediately. And uh, we're just glad that he doesn't gamble much in real life because I think he would be inveterate. So wonderful, wonderful game. Again, that's, that sounds fun, but not wise. So my condolences. Yes. <laughs> yes. He, he does. He resents that everyone keeps making fun of him for his poor gambling. Now, in some ways, Blood on the Clock Tower, just when you give that pitch, it sounds a lot like any number of social deduction games that are about finding hidden identities and where the primary currencies are things like trust uh, or suspicion. Uh, but there are a number of small details about Blood on the Clock Tower that set it apart from its peers. What would you identify as those traits or details? I think the. The most obvious ones, before I get to the smaller ones, the most obvious ones in Blood on the Clock Tower, first of all, there's no player elimination. Uh, if you die, you continue the game as a ghost. You can still talk, you still play, you just lose whatever ability you had. Uh, and second of all, every single player in the game has some kind of, inf they gain some kind of information or they have a special power that is useful to them in some way. This means that Every player in Blood on the Clock Tower has their group goal, but also a private goal. They have something to do. They have some information. They have something to go on. The smaller details, though, that I think, well, that I hope make Blood on the Clock Tower stand out is that I put a lot of effort into avoiding, avoiding design decisions that would make players antagonistic towards each other. I avoided a lot of design decisions that um, would make players suspicious, that would that would make players sort of hone in and focus on who's evil. And I put a lot of effort into giving, uh, muddying the waters when it comes to information so that there is a lot of information, but there's always the possibility that you're wrong or that the person that you think is evil is actually good and you have made a mistake. It's also a game that is more about it's more about building trust and finding other good players than mm -hmm. it is about finding evil players. There is a uh, is a little bit of both, and personally, I personally I find that more fun. 
I find it more fun to form a team that may be, that may have an evil member on it and mm-hmm. than to feel alone and to be casting, uh, expressing suspicion on particular players. So I really wanted Blood Under the Clock Tower to be a, a game where the good team solves the riddle as a team and the evil team inserts themselves into that group of players and leads them astray and nobody knows until the very end so the game is the game is designed so you don't know you don't know if you're drunk or if you're poisoned until after the game you don't know if you've won or lost until the very last minute of the game so that's to me what makes blood on the clock tower special uh the best games i've ever played is where i've I've had that experience of as a good player, solving solving the game, but not knowing until the very last second that we were right, or conversely, thinking that I've solved the game and being completely wrong and having a wonderful experience actually losing the game. Uh, mm-hmm. For me, Blood Clock Tower is really fun to lose, and that makes it more fun to win. Yeah. So you, you use a couple of words in there, like, um, drunk or poisoned, which maybe people might not recognize. Could you explain what's happening when somebody is drunk or poisoned? Uh, if you are drunk or if you are poisoned, it means that, uh, you think you have an ability, but you actually don't. The storyteller will pretend (laughs) that you have an ability. So if you, if you wake at night to gain information, uh, your information will be will be wrong. Uh, it's possible that it's correct, but it will almost certainly be wrong. So if you are, for example, a character called the empath, you'll wake at night to learn how many evil players you're sitting next to. And if you're, the, if you're drunk, you don't know that you're drunk. The, the storyteller, who is basically the referee of the game, uh, is just lying to you, just feeding you completely wrong information. So you might get a two, both your neighbors are evil and both your neighbors are good. And you'll go through the whole game thinking that they're evil. Uh, if you try to use your special power, it doesn't work, but you don't know that your special power doesn't work. Drunkenness and poisoning is really interesting because losing your ability is not fun as a player. If you get given a character and you, wow, I've got this cool ability, and then you lose it, it's, you feel like something's been taken away. So drunkenness and poisoning is something that, that I designed to take away abilities, but in a fun way because your mm-hmm. ability misfires it actually causes chaos. You become an agent that is unwittingly acting for the for the opposite team. And that, to, to me and to a lot of players, is a, a ton of fun. Well, I think that that's one of the big hooks. You know, when I first heard about Blood on the Clock Tower, I know a lot of people were speaking very excitedly about this possibility because so many social deduction games are just logic puzzles, Right where you, everybody sort of has a piece of the pie and you put all those together and it's very incumbent on the betrayer figure to know every piece of the puzzle so that they can insert themselves in and have specific information that they're falsifying. Whereas Blood on the Clock Tower uh, plays a little looser and therefore more uh, dramatically with its information that maybe you uh, truly believe that you know who the bad guy is, but Maybe you hallucinated it yeah, yeah. while you were head over heels drunk. And that's very exciting. It also necessitates that you have that narrator figure, the storyteller. Do you want to explain the role of the storyteller to our listeners at all? The, yeah, the role of the storyteller is, it's often, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with what it isn't, uh, if that's okay. Sure. It's easy when when you see a really good storyteller. It's easy to assume that the storyteller's role is to be a performer or a comedian, and that's nice if that's the kind of person that you are. Um, that's a, a nice little bonus if you want to be that that entertainer car- figure for your group. But really, the storyteller's role is more to be. It's similar to. Uh, the dungeon master role in D&D or the game master role in a lot of uh, role-playing games where your role first and foremost is to provide a rewarding 
an interesting experience for your players. Second of all, your role is to, as the as the storyteller for the game, is to run the game, to follow the rules of the game, to to a degree balance the game, but mostly just look at look at. First of all, to follow the rules of the game and to run the game. But second of all, it is to look at your players to see where there is conflicting information, to see which players are confident, which players are struggling, and to work behind the scenes using the tools that the game provides you to massage the emotional experience of the players. For example, if you have an ex- if you have for ex- uh, an extremely competent, verbally dominant leader type player in the group that is just getting fantastic information, everyone trusts, and tends to tends to be the main figure. If you have a player like this in your game in a group of newer players. It can be, I'm going to use the phrase artfully cruel <laughs> to, make that, <laughs> to make that player the drunk or to have to change the information in the game based on what the character abilities are so that that player looks suspicious. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you have a player that is more timid uh, and introverted, it can be a really great experience for that for that player to get a powerful character that has good information and trustworthy information that is linked to other players and characters in the game in a way that they form their own private trust circle. So your role as storyteller is a little bit to balance, but it's mostly to be a good host and to run the game in the background so that every player can shine and have the best time possible. I mean, it sounds to me, you use the uh, comparison to a game master in Dungeons and Dragons. It sounds like you're using the storyteller in a similar way because they're a social engineer, that they're the ones who are kind of helping lubricate everything to draw out those who are maybe a little shy, to tamp down those who are dominant maybe a little bit. And you provide a wide range of tools for them to do that. But when I say wide range of tools, really, it's quite elegant because you have things like drunk or poisoned that it's uh, it's really not too many things. It's just that they're very potent in the context of the game. Yeah. Drunkenness and poisoning is a really, really useful mechanic, not just to spread mis- misinformation in the game because the, the evil players are already lying. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a way, first of all, for people, to, for the good players to doubt their own information, but the way that each edition is structured means that drunk, the possibility of drunkenness and poisoning means that it can be quite difficult to hone down definitely on an evil player, which means that the worldview that you've built always has an escape clause uh, for that evil player to come up with a more logical reason why... Uh, someone else other than them should be executed. And this this makes it more fun for the evil players. One of the things that I personally don't like in in social deduction games is when I'm on the bad team, and I, I haven't played a lot of social deduction games, so please take this with a huge pile of salt, <laughs> is that I I find the game interesting, but I don't like being, being on the bad team and having... S- the whole group, or at least even one or two people, just know for an for a fact that I'm evil. I find that very difficult, to, or bad, or you know, on the red team or whatever. I find that very difficult to argue against. So in Clock Tower, I've designed mechanics that mean you've always got an out. You can always say, "Yes, I know that I appear evil to you, but that's probably because of this. Uh, either you're drunk, or you've been hit by the poisoner, or." I'm the recluse. That's how I my special power is not helpful. I register as evil to you. So I find it much more fun to have these escape clauses, which may or may, may or may not be legitimate. It's not just a thing you can say. This is a thing that happens to good players as well. There's also 
a collection of characters called the fabled fabled characters which are designed specifically for the storyteller to directly influence the game on a on a social level for example if you have one or one or two new players that are have come from games where the a fear of death a fear of dying in the game has been instilled in them and they've just they've they've entered they've entered the game and they're just afraid of dying there's a character called the angel that can prevent them from dying for a certain number of days until they get the hang of it there's another character called the the buddhist that makes uh more talkative players quiet for the first two minutes of each day if you need to (laughs) finish the game at a particular time you can bring in the fiddler so that you're never left with an unfinished game if people arrive late or need to leave early a lot of these there are characters specifically designed so that whatever all of those awkwardnesses i don't even know if that's a word all of those awkwardnesses of mm-hmm. that can arise as an organizer you have the tools to fix them if you've got players that arrive late here's a tool to fix it if you've got players if you've got an imbalance of new players and veteran players here's a tool to fix it if you're a storyteller that is having trouble um, getting heard by the group, you're quite softly spoken. There's a character that will intimidate your own players <laughs> in, a, <laughs> in a friendly way, but intimidate your, intimidate your own players so that they will pay attention to you at the time that you have something that you need to say. So I've put a lot of effort into making, to giving, giving the storyteller the tools that the storyteller needs to not only just run the game, but to solve all of those organizational niggles that happen when you get 10, 15 or 20 people in the same, same place for a game. Yeah. Um, it's not perfect, but it's pretty good. And a lot of people really love being the storyteller. It's not a role for everyone. I, I've probably, st- of the games that I've played, I've probably story told at least 90, 95% of them. I, I love being the storyteller and I've got a number of friends that just absolutely prefer the storyteller role. There's a sense of, it's not exactly power. It's, I think Quinn's put it best in his review. It's like you've, you've set the stage and written characters and created the first threads of a plot. And now, now your characters have come to life and they're getting away from you. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's a really, challenging and interesting experience being the storyteller. It really is. I, so um, just because I'm the one who owns the game, I of course have sort of defaulted into the storyteller role, but we found that some of our uh, other players have enjoyed stepping in and inhabiting that role and flexing their creative muscles, but maybe not in the way that a GM does uh, where they're creating the story, but as uh you really have created a storyteller who very much is a participant and no matter how, what happens in the story, they're winning just by dint of being someone who's sort of pushing dominoes and seeing how they fall down. One thing that just, I have loved about your game, uh, Stephen is the dramatic moments that come out of that information, not being certain. So for instance, you'll have a character like the monk, who every night the monk can say, well, I'm going to protect that person over there from the demon. And then what happens when in the morning that person has died? And it's such a shock to everybody. And, you know, they're saying, well, he said he was the monk and said he was going to protect somebody and that person died. And now everyone is doubting themselves and one another. And uh, that suspicion really is a marvelous thing to watch happen. Yeah. And there's deliberately always more than one explanation. Well, yeah. not always. <laughs> There'll be people listening to this, <laughs> writing writing comments already. But wherever <laughs> possible, I've made it made more than one explanation is fun. When it's just one explanation, once you've gone through the logic to get to that explanation, you never have to do that again. But when it's more than one, all the pieces of the puzzle are always moving and seeing seeing the most probable or the most likely outcome is 
I, th- I think the most fun way to play. It's possible in certain situations to have completely solved the game uh, by being able to name exactly who's who, but it's so rare mm-hmm. that you, you don't really need to get to that point to win the game. You just need to exclude the most ridiculous of possibilities, play the odds, and put your trust in certain people. Um, and that, that makes it fun for the evil team as well. Um, in, a, in a game where everyone know, everyone can figure out who the evil team is, uh, that can be fun for good, but that's not a lot of fun for evil. Um, so I, I really like having that more than one explanation. You use the monk as an example. You know, if, if you're a character that protects someone uh, and you protected that player and then that player died, maybe you're the drunk. Maybe, maybe you got hit by the poisoner. Maybe some, depending on the script, maybe something else happened. And additionally, from other people's point of view, maybe you're not the monk. So right. there's a number of different layers. And there's also that become important. And there's also the question, how important is what you're saying to the group's information as a whole? So one of the skills, I think, of an intermediate or advanced player is to be able to recognize those crucial moments and to say to the group, this is important. We need to focus on this and figure out why this thing happened. Yeah. Um, And that can be a strategy for evil is to just focus on focus on things that just aren't important. And yeah. And and that is that can be as devastating to the good team as straight up lying or misinformation. Well, one of the things that impresses me so much about Blood on the Clock Tower is how carefully curated that selection of ta- of characters is. So you have dozens of personalities, right? So somewhere between like 20 and 24 personalities per each of these scenarios which is which is a lot especially to a newcomer right when you hand out these sheets and you say okay here's the roles that are in this session it can be a little deer in the headlights moment but at the same time it's just tight enough that you've created uh, all of these little intersecting roles like you like you just pointed out that there might be two or three ways for every little thing in that particular session to occur and so it's it feels big but it's very carefully uh, brought down into a tight clockwork of possibility space. So with that in mind, could you walk us through some of the considerations that you were thinking about as you curated that set? What were you hoping to uh, put into these sets to maximize the drama, to decrease the certainty, to control the chaos? what were you shooting for so that players would feel like they were occupants in this story as it unraveled? That's a really good question. I guess generally speaking, what I was aiming for is that every player begins the game, uh, unless you're a veteran, every player begins the game sort of understanding what they do. Mm-hmm. I am I am character X, and I'll, I'll use a specific example. I'm the raven. I'm the raven keeper. Okay, I understand what I do. If I die, I get to pick a player uh, and learn their character. If I die at night, I pick a player, learn their character. Okay, so that's what I do. But what do I really do? What I really do is I verify a a player, whether good or bad. So what then, so I'm, I'm just putting myself in the, the player's perspective. What? How do I do that? How do I make the best choice? How do I die and how do I make the best choice possible? Okay, so I'm going to want to talk to a whole bunch of different players to find the player who I want to, it's most important for me to check. Either I can find a good player to confirm or either I can find an evil player that I will learn that they're evil and that will give us information. But I also need to die at night. So I need to be lying about who I am so that the demon will attack me. And as the game progresses, I interact with other players that also have totally different goals, 
totally different goals for their character. We all have the, we all have the same goal in terms of a team win. And so as I pursue my goal, my story becomes intertwined with the story of other players. I might come across someone like, for example, the empath who I described before. I'm sitting next to the empath and I say, okay, the empath has just told me that they've got a one. So my arc as a player is now getting diverted into the arc of a different character, which is the empath. And I interact with them in an interesting way. So I've now formed a bond with this player on a story level. And so I'm trying to help other players achieve their goals while also achieving my goal. And this ends up in a sort of spaghetti-like merging of every player's story, which is where the, where the drama comes from, and every player's desire to win, which is where the what fuels the emotion. So generally speaking, that was that was the experience that I wanted every player, at least every good player to have. Starting alone and isolated with just enough information or just enough of a job or a goal to get them talking to other players. And then the more they talk to other players, the more they build a picture of what's happening and they get a sense of their own role in the larger story. For evil, the starting point is terror. (laughs) (laughs) You are outnumbered. You are outgunned. And you know most of what you need to know and you have to coordinate and artfully keep that, keep, you have to keep the good team confused. So you have to find your other evil players, talk to them, come up with a workable plan on how to stay alive, on how to identify the biggest threats in the good team and neutralize them either because you can't, you can't neutralize a player by killing them because they, they just still talk. So the, the drama that I wanted for the, for the template for the drama that I wanted for the evil player is to start with that feeling of being outgunned and outnumbered and on the back foot, and then to build a coalition to come up with a plan to see where the chinks in the good team's armor are, to artfully place misinformation, to, to lose your own team through, through sacrificing your own minions mm-hmm. uh, or your own evil players, and then on that final day to, to get enough votes to win and to have the thrill of a secretive plan coming to fruition. Um, so the experience that I wanted from the evil team is is very much one of of a successful conspiracy, whereas mm-hmm. the experience that I wanted from the good players is for the good players rather is one of individual puzzle solving that almost gets forgotten about in the larger picture, um, and then remembered at the end as everything comes together. And I think the experiences for the the good team is radically different than the evil team. Uh, and the experience of winning is is also very different. Yeah. Trouble Brewing. Trouble Brewing was one of the more difficult additions to create. I think what I described is pretty much what Sex and Violets, the third edition, succeeds at. There's a lot of information, a lot of misinformation. The evil team are very powerful, but the good team win by information, so they have to keep that information from the good team. Whereas with Trouble Brewing, I really needed to make a a game that was accessible. Like mm-hmm. we, were, we were just saying about like there's 25 characters. So the evil the evil characters needed to be understandable at a at a read. And all of the good characters needed are designed so that if you are claiming to be this character, it generates conversation. You don't need to know everything all at once. You really need to know what you do in Trouble Brewing mm-hmm. and you need to know what the evil characters do, do. And once you do that, you're fine. But there's also a lot of other considerations in Trouble Brewing. Like there couldn't be too many characters that act at night because no one wants to sit there for 20 minutes with your eyes closed. Right. 
there couldn't be too much information because um, that will tend to overload a new player's ability to disentangle that information. But there couldn't be so little information that there was nothing to go on. Yeah. So with Trouble Brewing, I tried to put in characters that really gave information from a number of different angles as the game progresses. Mm -hmm. You've got four characters that get information on the first night. That gets the ball rolling. It gets people talking. But characters like the Slayer or the Virgin choose when they use their ability during the day, more or less. And so that keeps the trickle of information going a little bit every day. And your monk example, protecting someone as the monk is just as useful to the good team as protecting someone and have that player die. And that's something that happens as the game progresses. So Trouble Brewing is, is on top of that, is designed to be a experience that the, for, the new, for the new player to learn all the different ways that you can get information mm-hmm. whilst playing the game. And then, then have that final day showdown, which is hopefully a thrill. You mentioned that you haven't played that many social deduction games. Do, which ones have you played? I've played I played Werewolf probably about a dozen times. I played Resistance once and Secret Secret Hitler once. Okay, so you've hit some of the big highlights of the genre, but maybe not uh, not played them to exhaustion. So. One of the things that, you know, you, you take this time and you describe all of these things that I are am, going sorry, into and, these sets. Sorry to interrupt. And Battlestar Galactica, too. I played oh, probably yeah. a dozen times, which okay. I really liked. I thought that was cool. Sorry for interrupting. Yeah. No, not at all. That's a gr- I'm glad you brought that up because that's a good one. So you used some, you used some words in there like uh, arc, that there's this notion of an arc. And that's something that stands out to me when I play Blood on the Clock Tower is most of the games that we're describing. And actually, Battlestar Galactica is a little bit of an exception, but I couldn't tell you one session from another. Right? Like, I've, I've played Secret Hitler many times. I've played One Night Ultimate Werewolf many times. I've played Resistance many times. And they all just sort of blob together. <laughs> You know, I don't really remember the particulars of one session versus another. Whereas having had played Blood on the Clock Tower, not all that many times, but about half a dozen times, individual sessions, I can pick them out as relatively distinct. And I think it has a lot to do with that notion that you were talking about of having an arc in which me as my character being entangled with the person next to me, who they are telling the information that may be false or true. It generates a story which sticks in my mind a lot more tangibly than just was I resistance or was I not? Was I traitor? Was I not? Was I a secret Nazi or was I not? Those things tend to be very uh, viscous. Whereas my identity in blood on the clock tower and therefore the narrative that it produces is memorable. I can remember quite a few moments despite not having played much blood on the clock tower that stand out as these big dramatic reveals that had people uh, talking. And I, like I, like I said earlier, I remember everyone making fun of Jeff for being the gambler. That's not something that we remember out of most games. So as you're designing this, clearly there's a lot going on. Did you ever feel that the chaotic nature of this game was getting away from you? I still, I still feel that. (laughs) (laughs) Fair. Yes. Yes. And no, I think yes. On a sort of business, on a business level, the chaotic, like with blood on the clock tower, I'm going to backtrack a little. Um, Those moments that you're describing Compare Clocktower compared to Battlestar Galactica, for example. Battlestar Galactica has a preset story, and mm-hmm. that's why we play Battlestar Galactica. We've seen we've seen the show, and we want to live that experience. Uh, sorry, to live that story in the format of a game on one side or another. So the story is is already laid out for us, and that's what we want. 
there are decision points because we don't know what the ending of the story is going to be. But that's why we play the game is because we're living the, we're living that fantasy and where we get to have decision points that bring that bring strategy and bring a game. The thrill of having a game in that universe is mm-hmm. why Battlestar Galactica succeeds. It's also a really well-designed game. With, with Blood on the Clock Tower, I did everything in reverse. There's a game called, uh, I don't know if it's still played, called DayZ. Oh yeah, and it's a yeah, it's a. I watched a few Daisy videos, and all of the fun, all of the moments in Daisy that were so memorable emerged from. Like they were all emergent gameplay moments where people mm-hmm. had broken the rules or they'd gone off and done something wild that I'm sure the designers didn't expect them to do, but the mechanics of the game were designed specifically so that. A, so that that type of thing could emerge. And that's, I did that deliberately with Blood on the Clock Tower. In, I didn't want to have a set story. That's why there's so little story in the game, because you, you don't mm-hmm. want to play the same story over and over again. I, for every single character in the game, I imagined a couple of those moments that you were talking about and designed mechanics that would facilitate those moments and other things that are, that the players would create for themselves. So with the gambler, as you mentioned, I, I deliberately created the gambler for the drama of getting it right and for the drama of getting it wrong, and then yeah. made the mecha- then made the mechanics and the theme afterwards. I was just talking that talking last night about the evil twin character, and the evil twin is a character where. You and one good player wake, you make eye contact and you learn each other's character and one of you has to be executed before the good team can win. But if you execute the wrong player, if you execute the good twin and not the evil twin, uh, the evil team wins. So the good team has to execute the evil twin and they cannot execute the good twin. And of course, they both claim, both players are claiming to be the good twin. I didn't start with the mechanic of the evil twin. I had that dramatic moment that you just described the <laughs> in my head for the evil twin, that moment where you wake up and make eye contact. And if you're the good twin, you look at the evil twin and you go, oh, God, no. Are we really going to do this? <laughs> and the evil, the evil twin is just grinning like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that That moment makes the character worthwhile those moments where the two players are just passionately claiming to be the same character and everyone knows one of them is evil and they don't know who to pick those moments kind of write the mechanics themselves Mm -hmm. so in terms of the game coming back to your question in terms of the chaos of the game In-game, in that's exactly what I wanted. I wanted to create a game that was infinitely replayable because the, the mechanics encourage chaos, and out of that chaos comes fun, and it comes, it comes originality as well. When there's no set way to play a character, there's no set way to play the game in the way that, for example, with Hanabi. Hanabi's fun until you get good at it, <laughs> and then, right. there's a pro- yes. then there's a process that you follow to win and to me i'm like i don't want to follow a process i want the challenge of trying to figure things out for myself so in clock clock towers was designed specifically so that you almost have to do a wild bluff just to see if you can get away with it those moments where the story the in-game story and the social story that you're telling that emerges from the in-game story tend are almost the same thing. I've had so many moments similar to what you've described that I will never, that I'll just never forget. Yeah. There's a game where I was, um, I, and I've said this before, but um, there's a game where I was uh, a member of the Legion team and my nemesis, my, my nemesis, Amy Hawks, who is a very good player was one of the few good players. And I spent the entire game bluffing 
as every minion on the script. Like I, I was getting the whole team to pretend that they'd been hit by the Serenovus. I was hit by the Serenovus. Players were claiming, I think I'm poisoned. I claimed to be the goblin. I said, hey, I think there's a widow in play because I, I was told there was a widow in play and I was being so obviously evil. And my <laughs> job for that game was to convince Amy that I was a minion because I knew if Amy believes I've a, I'm a minion, Amy believes that there is a different demon in play than actually is in play and that will be the win. And it's hard to adequately communicate the joy on my face and the shock on Amy's <laughs> face when, when we won. And she said, no, the storyteller's made a mistake. That's literally impossible unless, <laughs> and you could see the cogs turning and like her, her face just dropped, her eyes went wide. And, she, <gasps> and it's a, it's that story might not mean much to anyone other than me or Amy, but like those moments in a great role in a great role playing session they'll stick they'll stick with you 10 years later and they only come out of player originality and player originality only comes out of chaos so on that level I'm very i'm very happy for the game to have gotten out of control on a business level there's so much homebrew so many different projects we've got uh, we've got merchandise happening. We've got homebrew characters. We've got yeah. Um, yeah. new additions. We've got released characters. People are creating their own scripts, uh, different languages. We're enormous in China. That are, China's doing TV shows and uh, competition games and all sorts of stuff. Mm. And that chaos on the, on the on the business level is the less enjoyable kind of stress. Let's put it that way. <laughs> in, in, game, in, game, in game is the, is the satisfying stress. So. so have you had, so you describe these great characters. You know, I, I have not played Sex and Violets yet. So now I'm really eager because I want to see this evil twin in action. That's part of the fun of the game is just even hearing it described. I can immediately envision the sort of drama that arises from that moment. Like, the first morning we all wake up and immediately two people are like twin twin, you know, no one even, no one else even has any time to talk before the accusations are flying. And that's exciting. Were there any characters that you designed that you had this great concept and you just couldn't get them to work? Or have you, uh, have you bent every, everything into working order somehow? Yeah, I've still got, I've got a brainstorming list of about a hundred and, about 150 characters. Wow. That are good ideas, but just they're, they're too powerful. They're too broken. They're 300 words. <laughs> most of the characters, most of the characters for, of the, most of the released characters started as a great idea that was just too awkward. And I just chiseled, chiseled down and chiseled down and chiseled down until it, met the word count until it was simple enough to understand. So I'll get there. And there's also just a lot of bad ideas. Like, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of bad ideas that are fun ideas. And well, give us an example. They, they, just, they just, they just take, they just take a, a lot of time to, to not wreck stuff. Like it's fun when you like <laughs> you, bad ideas when you play with your friends are fine, but, a bad idea when you're printing um, however many tens of thousands of tokens and rule books and sure put, putting putting your money behind it is is still a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> got I've got a ton more characters that are half ready for release and uh, just a and about as many characters which are like that's fun. No way, <laughs> that's just going to wreck games. But the big ones, the big ones, originality too. Like a character needs to be. If it's not original, like I'd, I'd rather have. If it's not original, I'd rather just not release it. Like I'd, I'd rather, I'd rather have a, I'd rather have a character that's a little bit broken and zany, and totally unique, and mm -hmm. and and people love, than a character that 
is balanced. Makes a lot of sense. Does exactly what it says on the tin, but it's just kind of a it's just kind of a fortune teller raven keeper, or it's just kind of a mere monk. That's th- there's no there's really no point to release that character. So that's yeah. originality is often the the big challenge. There's an interesting compromise in the game. You mentioned that there's no player elimination, and that's that's true, but there is player elimination you know players are going to die and um you know i i know some designers will defend or excoriate player elimination because it knocks people out of the game and that's a bummer but you kind of hit this compromise between the two extremes where deceased players still have a role to play they still talk but they're limited to one vote so how did you arrive at that decision to have limited player elimination so that people dying still matters that there's still an impact to it, but that everybody still is in the game. How early was that put into the game or did you, was there ever a point in development where you were just killing people and saying, all right, now you, you get out of here. You, you have to go home. No more party for you. No fun for you, dude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're out. That's rule, that's rule five. <laughs> you must not have fun. <laughs> yeah. Originally, Originally, I didn't have the extra vote, but I always had players. The way that I was taught Werewolf was that, and I assume this is the official ruling, is that once you are dead, you exit the game and you can no longer talk. It's not just that you have no, no power. You just cannot interact with the game in any way. And I wanted to get rid of that. And I originally just had players. I said to players, look, you, you can still participate. You can still talk because the I wanted the evil players to continue lying, the good players to share their information, because I, I didn't want players to be afraid of dying. If When you die, you're out of the game. It feels bad when you've got, like, oh, I had information and I didn't share it. Ah, now I can't say anything. So I always wanted players to share their information at any point during the game, and therefore you can hang around. But I had a lot of players that were saying, when they were dead, oh, I'd, I'd actually really like to just look at the grimoire and like see what's happening. And I thought, well, that's interesting. But what play? Some players wanted to hang around and talk, and some players wanted to watch watch what was happening. But everyone wanted to continue with the game itself. They didn't. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to go and play a different game. So the one. The one vote mechanic, which re- I put in as a way to give every player that was dead something to aim for, having that one final vote, like having an influence over players just with your over other players just with your words, is one thing. But having that final vote means that the dead have the power. On the final day, if you've got a fifteen-player game, you've got twelve dead players three living players, you're probably going to have between about nine to 12 dead players who have a vote. So the idea, probably about six to 12 months into playtesting, I just put this in as a way to not just give the dead players pseudo participation, but to give them literally literally the dominant power in the game. The good players, with the dead players voting, the good, and again, com- coming back to that example, 15 players, three living players, final, the final day, the, fin- the climax of the game, you have, let's say, 12 dead players, and that's 12 dead players voting. Every good player worth their salt will recognize, I'm not trying to convince the other living players, I'm trying to convince the dead players not to vote for me. So it's not just a tokenistic, which is ironic because it's literally a token, but it's not just to- a tokenistic <laughs> participation. The dead players have the power. And that means that when you're dead, you're having fun because people are talking to, talking to you because they need to get you on their side. So that was, that was really the vision for inclusion of dead players was to shift the balance of power as the game progresses 
from the group of good player, the group of living players to the group of dead players. Because in a in any kind of board game, in any kind of yeah, in any kind of board game, player agency and making decisions is where the fun is. The thoughts that go up to making that decision, the consequences of that decision, make that decision meaningful, and that's where mm-hmm. the, that's where the fun is, and that's where the strategy is as well. So, I, I wanted the dead players to have a blast, and the way that you have fun is by having power, but not so much so much power that other players don't have fun as well. I've had, you know, I've had a, a couple of people mention that they have never played Blood on the Clock Tower, but that they love watching it. And that, you know, and you mentioned that there are maybe some, you know, game show type setups where people th- that are being designed for people to just watch this game being played. Mysteries are an interesting genre just because they're, they're, you become a character because you're also trying to deduce what has occurred in the story. And you've sort of turned that into its own genre in a sense, in that the people who are dead are, they're, they're as invested as anybody in seeing how this mystery unravels, but they have that extra tether to that game with that last vote. Yeah, I think. The experience of watching Blood on the Clock Tower is similar to being dead. I think when you're dead, it's more than just a tether. Most Some players disengage, but most players, particularly the players who are regulars and who love playing Clock Tower, being dead, just it's just, it's just the second phase of the game. It's the phase where you have more of a voice, but slightly less strategic involvement for players that are for people that are watching blood on the clock tower i always recommend one of two things either make sure that you can see the the grimoire the grimoire is the the box that has all the all the tokens so you know who's everyone's character is it's almost always much more enjoyable to see who everyone is to see who's lying who's telling the truth who's secretly stressing (laughs) (laughs) what plans are being successful what plans are being thwarted where you know it's it's like watching a sport that is really fun for a lot of people who who just want to watch but i and most most people find that much more enjoyable than not knowing who is who which can just be a confusing cacophony of voices uh, with all conflicting information. But for people who like to watch Blood on the Clock Tower, I recommend I recommend playing as a traveler. One of the one of the biggest fears of a lot of people who want to play Clock Tower but don't or or who do or who do play but tentatively is the fear of the fear of getting an evil character and having to having to bluff in a game with players that are more experienced than you the fear is really of saying the wrong thing mm-hmm. and and letting your team down so i've done what i can to mitigate that fear by these fabled characters that i mentioned earlier but it, it can be quite intimidating to get into a game with you know with 14 other players and it's a talking yes. game you're evil and you're you're evil and you have to lie and you don't you don't know what to say and you just you just need to talk to your other evil players and say help me that can be quite intimidating but the storyteller is there to, is there to help you and and to say okay just pick a good character pretend to be that character and you'll be fine but for players that don't want to just jump into a game with veteran players or they don't have other beginners to play with playing with other beginners is just not a problem it's it's really easy i recommend that people play as a traveler which is a character everyone knows which character you are but they don't know whether you're good or evil and you have a you have all of the power but none of the responsibility you have some devastating power to influence the game and everyone knows who you are there's no bluffing involved but you don't have information so you're sort of shooting blindly mm-hmm 
a lot of new players, I mean, for example, there's a character called the Gunslinger. After everyone votes in the game, you get to kill one player that voted. <laughs> or there's the Bureaucrat that gives a player of your choice triple voting power. So you get to form alliances, you get to have a big impact on the game, and you still win or lose with the good team. You're still really invested in the game, but you don't have to worry about bluffing. Uh, and it's a lot of players that I've come across that are either shy or they want, they want to watch, but they also want to play. I just say, take a traveler, have fun. Yeah. And if you just want to play a traveler again, the following game, great, great. You can just be a traveler every time you play. And if you get the hang of the game via playing a traveler, play a, uh, a non-traveler character next game and have a different experience of either bluffing or of uh, figuring out who's who. So I really, really like travelers for the players that want to watch the game. It's uh, yeah, it's 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 really cool. You mentioned that it's sort of intimidating, and I think that this raises a question that we see quite often in this hobby, which is that we have there. There's this question. I'm sure you've heard of the semi-cooperative problem. Have you heard of that? I have not. Go for it. So let's say that we're playing a semi-cooperative game, right? And the gist for those who don't know, a semi-cooperative game is a game where we have to work together or we will lose, but only, only one or some of us can actually win the game. And so let's say that you're trailing in the game. Should you contribute to the cooperative portion of the game so that somebody else can win or should you tank that portion of the game so that everybody loses? What do you think? It really depends on the game. I think that's probably my guess is that such a game would be an interesting psychological exercise, but could very easily lead to bad feelings. Mm hmm. It, it really depends on how the game is designed. Having, I think the important thing is having a clear win condition, a, a decent amount of time before you reach that condition. Um, so if you sort of start that game and you very quickly, like in the first third of the game, you make the decision, I'm going to deliberately lose this game for the team, then that becomes your win condition and you've secretly won the game because that's what you were trying to do. <laughs> yeah. Even though the game has said that you've lost, you've actually won because you've set a goal for yourself in the game that is your personal win condition, even though it's called a lose condition. So I think the more important thing is that you, whatever that goal is, is that it's set either set for the player agreed upon as a group or each player has an emotional investment in reaching this particular conclusion in the first third of the game. And it's not just done as a whim because when it's done as a whim, it's sort of a fuck you to the other players. Mm -hmm. And that, that becomes a person that can easily become a personal thing. But when it's, when it's sort of set at, at the beginning of the game, that becomes something that the players that are trying to win need to take into consideration. So I, I think it's mm -hmm. really about managing expectations. I mean, that can work, but it'll, it'll be a lot more difficult than just just having a clear win condition. Yeah. So the reason I bring it up is, so the semi-cooperative problem is interesting because you can find people debating it for hundreds of pages, literally on places like board game geek, where they're, they're discussing, you know, which which they prefer. Should should somebody tank the game? Should they be a team player? Which is it? And there are a few games that lean into that ambiguity and ask players to not be so afraid of the social space and the potential bad feelings, but to embrace it and to see that and see that problem more as an opportunity, a social opportunity. And it seems to me like you have designed a game that has a keen eye toward everybody's enjoyment, but also allows everybody to explore a lot of social ambiguity, but in a safe space, a, a space that isn't quite as intimidating as some of these games. 
did you have a mind toward designing that sort of thing when you were building it? Or is that just a happy circumstance? It was in my mind pretty much at, at every, every point. You know, if, if a particular character design did not encourage what you were just describing, it got scrapped. If a particular rule incentivized players away from what you were just describing, it got scrapped. And every character and every rule that firmly or gently moved towards what you were just describing got included. Mm -hmm. Because the the fun of social deduction games are are, are talking games. There is a strategy element to it. They're a game. They're a game fundamentally about talking, and that's that's where the enjoyment is. And if your game doesn't encourage enjoyment through talking, then it's a different type of game. Yeah. And and it's not that every game has to encourage fun through talking, but um, you know, like Twilight Imperium, you, you could you could thoroughly enjoy Twilight Imperium not saying a word. The, the fun of Twilight Imperium is in in this in the strategy whereas some other yeah. games the fun is fun is in the story and clock tower the fun is in the social experience so that's yeah. where everything needs to be focused well Stephen I'm so grateful that you agreed to talk to me today so before we wrap up I just wanted to ask you what is next so you've created this game that's a bit of a hit uh, I don't know if you noticed and um, and now you are running this company. What are you, uh, what's the future for Stephen Medway and Blood on the Clock Tower and everything else? Take a break, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the, future, the future for TPI, I've got a whole bunch of other games that are half designed that I'd really love to finish and mm-hmm. release. I don't know if they're as good as Clock Tower. Maybe. My guess is not. <laughs> so, yeah, I'll be, I'll be hiring a professional PR marketing person to rephrase that. But, you know, like I, I design games that I, I like to play and sometimes that becomes a niche thing and some that, sometimes that becomes a really popular thing. So we'll see. For Clock Tower, I think the next step is the kind of thing you were you were alluding to before Dan with um live events and we've done we've we've just done the Edinburgh Fringe festival with a, like a, a blood on the clock tower comedy show which was uh quite a hit and it was um it was it was a blast and we replicated that at a convention here in Sydney um I'd love to move more and more into live events and new forms that clock tower can take because it is really fun to watch when Mm -hmm. you've got when you've got the right people running it the right people playing it it can be just an absolute blast to watch i think there's a lot of opportunity film film tv show live events that type of stuff and and we'll sort of see what happens like a lot of a lot of what clock tower has become is due to fan-made fan-made content and and community participation so you never really know where that's going to go all, all i know is that clock yeah. towers for a lot of people clock towers more than a game it's it's a community or it's a like dungeons and dragons it's something that you seek seek a certain degree of meaning in on a story level and on a social level that's kind of hard to put mm-hmm. into words so i'm i'm hoping to just make make the most of it I, i'm not really sure what it's going to look like in the next sort of five years but we'll see well i wish you all the best uh of luck with uh watching it transform and hopefully the chaos doesn't get too far away from you so if our if our listeners want to find out more about you or Blood on the Clock Tower, where should they look? Uh, the easiest, the best point of call is probably just the website. 
the website has uh, all the information, all the information you need, plus links to all of our social media stuff. So once again, this is Stephen Medway. I hope folks get to check out the game Blood on the Clock Tower, and we'll catch you later.